Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Stephen Hassan, a mental health professional and author of the book The Cult of Trump, who expresses concern that Trump supporters will once again respond with violence if their candidate loses the 2024 election. Betty Moose, a 20-year-old college student, active with the group Climate Defiance, who talks about the group's direct action protests targeting government officials who aren't using their power to address the climate crisis. And Richard D. Wolf, professor of economics, who discusses the rise of the BRICS block of developing nations, shaping a new global economy no longer dominated by the U.S. and its allies. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. After China banned plastic waste imports in 2018, developing nations in Southeast Asia were flooded with junk plastic from the U.S. and Europe. Indonesia responded by limiting the flow of discarded plastic, establishing new regulations and enforcement regimes. Yale Environment 360 magazine reports that four years ago, an amendment was passed by the Global Basel Convention, which mandates rules for developed nations sending hazardous waste to less developed ones. It was hoped that the new regulations would help control abuses in the discarded plastic trade. Plastics often end up in landfills, clogging rivers, or burned in open pits. In the two and a half years since the amendments came into force in 2021, the problem of plastic waste persists. Enforcement is hampered in part because the U.S., the world's biggest discarded plastic exporter, never ratified the amendment. In fact, the U.S. now ships less plastic to Southeast Asia, but sends more to Mexico and India. European nations that previously shipped to Thailand now favor Turkey, But more effective regulations are now being debated in the European Parliament, which proposed requiring countries receiving European recyclables to demonstrate through independent audits that they can manage them sustainably and would gradually ban the export of plastic waste entirely. Dollar General is one of the largest nationwide chains of dollar stores. The company's lean business model is to build its stores where the average income is less than $40,000 a year. Like Walmart, these stores crush local retail competitors by supplying low-priced products to cash-strapped populations. Now, Dollar General is moving into the healthcare market. The company announced plans to expand a program with DG Wellbeing to attach health clinics to select stores. Company executives hope to profit off healthcare deserts where the populace is underserved by economically strained rural and urban medical networks. The American Prospect magazine reports that Dollar General and other retailers view America's health crisis as a business opportunity. Dollar General's partner, DocGo, which will operate mobile clinics, has a reputation of shortchanging its medical staff. The company recruits staff with little medical experience who readily accept low wages. 
There's a perverse irony that the company which sells low-quality foods is now trying to take over health services in the same areas whose access to fresh, nutritious foods is being strangled by their own stores. Leah Hunt Hendricks was born into a life of privilege, growing up in a luxury apartment on Fifth Avenue in New York City. She's a member of the right-wing family that owns Hunt Oil, one of the largest private oil and gas companies in the U.S. Hunt Hendricks, now in her 40s, had an awakening when she met Duke University divinity professor Stanley Hauerwas, who convinced the undergraduate that her family's big oil money was not normal and that she should find a way to make herself useful. Over time, Hunt Hendricks became a chief fundraiser for the American left, spending some time in the Occupy Wall Street protests. Today, she funds the Sunshine Movement and other grassroots activists advocating passage of Green New Deal legislation. As founder of Way to Win, a cluster of groups promoting progressive politicians, Hunt Hendricks helped bankroll several progressive congressional candidates, including U.S. Representatives Cori Bush in St. Louis and Jamal Bowman in New York City. As a New Yorker magazine profile notes, Hunt Hendricks is among a group of super-rich heirs of oil fortunes who support grassroots campaigns organizing against the fossil fuel industry and confronting the climate crisis. Others include Eileen Getty of the Getty Oil Fortune and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Donald Trump runs for president in the 2024 election, he's been indicted four times on state and federal criminal violations that total 91 charges. Those indictments include the most recent RICO charges brought against Trump and 18 co-defendants in Georgia, special counsel Jack Smith's federal charges for conspiring to subvert American democracy, the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, and the adult film star Hush Money case in New York. Most of these cases will likely go to trial next year. In May, a jury found Trump to be liable for sexual abuse and defamation, awarding the writer E. Jean Carroll $5 million in damages. Yet despite being mired in unprecedented legal trouble and a proven record of dishonesty unparalleled among U.S. presidents, this twice-impeached former president remains the front-runner to capture the 2024 Republican Party nomination. An August CBS News YouGov survey found that Trump voters trust him more than they trust their own friends and family, conservative media, or even religious leaders. Millions of people across the U.S. and the world are mystified as to why Trump continues to command the loyalty of the vast majority of Republican voters. Your reporter spoke with Stephen Hassan a cult survivor, mental health professional, and author of the book The Cult of Trump, who draws parallels between Trump and people like Jim Jones, David Koresh, Ron Hubbard, and Sun Myung Moon, 
maintaining that Trump exploits and manipulates his followers' prejudices and fears. Here, Hassan talks about how many Trump supporters are indoctrinated and his concern that these supporters will once again respond with violence if he loses the 2024 election. I don't believe Donald Trump uh, is a mastermind. Uh, He's certainly a malignant narcissist, which is the stereotypical profile of all cult leaders, you know, not just the lack of empathy and the grandiosity and the need for attention and praise, but thinking they're above the law and the pathological lying, the sadistic element, paranoid, violent, threats of violence, harassing. We know he's got that, but I really believe he's being manipulated by very powerful forces that have a strong presence on the Internet through social media platforms where over 5,000 data points we now understand has been gathered on every voting American. And with AI, uh, people are in this indoctrination bubble believing that Donald Trump is an agent of God. At least 40 million Americans, I believe, believe that. And not that he's a saint or he's a good man, but the Democrats are worse. The Democrats are all satanic and pedophiles and traffickers. That's what people are programmed to believe. And it's the fear of the other that is keeping people in the bubble. And also, we have a lot of very bad actors in Congress and in the Senate and on TV and other media outlets that are continuing to keep that bubble going in people's minds. So there's a lot, a big reason to understand how people are impervious to facts and to uh, reality testing. However, what My career of 47 years now uh, tells me is that people, even though they say that they are devout Trump followers, they still have doubts. They're just suppressed. And that if we were smart, we would be educating everyone about what is due influence, ethical influence, and what's undue influence and teaching people how to interact with people who are believers in a way that's respectful, curious, and asking good questions, as opposed to calling them names, calling them stupid, and just, you know, using the cult word as a pejorative. I want people to understand there's hope to turn this around, but it's not going to happen without everyone understanding how much undue influence is being leveled at us, and in particular, as I mentioned, through the digital media, uh, because people are on their cell phones eight hours a day or more, or media sources uh, where they're trusting people who are demonstrated that they're untrustworthy. You know, one of the most frightening things in our politics today from where I'm sitting is the penchant for political violence that we see within the Republican Party. We've seen the normalization of death threats and stochastic domestic terrorist attacks targeting the very same groups that Trump and the Republican Party regularly demonize, not only with their rhetoric, but with their policies. And these groups, of course, targeted have been blacks, immigrants, 
the LGBTQ community, drag queens, teachers, Asians, Jews, election workers, and intellectuals as a whole. We've talked to Ruth Ben-Ghiat about these issues as well, but what is your level of concern about violence here as we enter this 2024 presidential campaign? And what happens if this whole Trump MAGA movement collapses? Unfortunately, uh, as I predicted, if Trump didn't win the 2020 election, there would be violence. I wrote that in Cult of Trump book in 2019. Uh, Trump's going to take a lot of people with him, unfortunately. And he he's more likely to direct people to uh, mass violence than to... Uh, to just fade away and say, well, I gave it my best shot. So I, I'm seriously worried. And um, uh, all I can say is uh, buying gun, more guns is not the answer. But on the other hand, I hope the government has, has been working on contingency plans for what to do if armed militias like the Oath Keepers for example, the Proud Boys uh, start roaming streets with AR-15s. And I think that's why the judges have given such long sentences to do their best to send a message that this is not tolerated, that you're going to be in jail for a very long time if you want to instigate an insurrection. That was Stephen Hassan, author of the book The Cult of Trump. A leading cult expert explains how the president uses mind control. Learn more about Hassan's Freedom of Mind Resource Center by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A new youth-led climate group burst on the scene last April when they organized a blockade of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, a black-tie affair where the president and the media that cover him get together for fun and frivolity. These climate protesters didn't stop the dinner, but they garnered some media coverage for their demand that those in power take action to address the climate crisis. The group, Climate Defiance, has gone on to interrupt events like congressional birthday parties, sporting events, the Economic Symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and many speeches by those in power, especially in the Biden administration. One clear victory for the group was calling out Harvard environmental law professor Jody Freeman for collecting a six-figure salary as a board member of the fossil fuel giant ConocoPhillips. Freeman resigned from that position a few weeks later. In recent months, climate defiance has received major media coverage from the New York Times and Washington Post, and many of their social media posts have gone viral. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Betty Moose, a 20-year-old college student from Maryland who's participated in several actions with the group, most recently crashing Maryland Representative Steny Hoyer's 83rd birthday party to demand an end to fossil fuels. I decided to go to my first um, climate rally on Earth Day of this year, and it was amazing. And I met one of the best communities of people ever, and they shared my values more than anybody I had ever spoken to in my life. That made me realize that, you know, even if nothing came of my personal participation in the movement, it gave me a sense of joy and purpose and community regardless. So 
from there, um, I started by meeting people with Extinction Rebellion, and they told me that this new group, Climate Defiance, was having this um, huge action at the White House Correspondents' Dinner the following week. And I was like, woohoo, let's go. Could you describe Climate Defiance's strategy? Each one of these events is effective to varying degrees, obviously, but they're all effective in that we find these people that are not using the political and economic power that they have to, you know, mitigate this crisis. And we find out where they are going to be. And we go into these spaces where they feel that they will not be met with any criticism that they can just pretend that they are doing everything they can for the people of, for the citizens of the United States. We show up to let them know that they cannot pretend that anymore. We're forcing them to reckon with the fact that they are participating in, you know, the destruction of everything we know and love. So that's really what we do at every action. And I think it has been incredibly effective. You know, they have to they have to take the the mask that they've put on off. They have to like sit there and not be able to respond because responding would reveal that they have not taken the action that they could. Or they have to, you know, f- flee because they don't want to reckon with what they've done. So it's it's effective because we get footage of it and we let people know what's going on because these people have been able to hide under this facade they create of them like doing everything they can for the greater good, which is just not true. Betty Moose, your group is usually not arrested, but just kicked out of these events. I know there were arrests at least once, and more than once, members of your group have been kind of brutalized. With the way the system is set up, you have to, you do have to take great risks if you want this great reward of, you know, preserving people and the planet. So when we confronted Jennifer Granholm, who is Biden's secretary of the Department of Energy in Detroit, Michigan, we were pretty brutalized by the security at the hotel she was giving her keynote speech at. Almost everyone who was inside got grabbed and pushed and shoved, and most of us got some pretty bad bruising. Nothing too awful, but again, you are fighting to try to get these people to do what they know is right instead of continuing to comply with the system that is killing us so that they can remain with the status quo and get paid. And it's difficult when you have to put your body on the line because the status quo is unfortunately so strong. That's why we have gotten ourselves into this mess. President Biden is an all-of-the-above energy supporter, approving frac gas projects and oil projects. I know that has disgusted many young climate activists. It seems like most of your actions target members of the Biden administration. Do you think doing that would weaken him in the 2024 presidential election? And do you care if it does? We don't get involved in you know, electoral things. We go after Biden because he has the this power to make change. And he has broken his promises. And he says he passed the IRA and then takes 10 steps backwards with the Mound Valley Pipeline, Willow Project, Alaska LNG, et cetera, et cetera. But there's been the need to call him out for that. And then also the awareness that 
a president who acknowledges the climate crisis is better than one who says it's not real and says drill, baby, drill. That was Betty Moose, a 20-year-old college student and activist with the group Climate Defiance. Learn more about the group and their protest actions by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The year 2020 marked parity between the gross domestic product of the G7 nations, the U.S., Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the European Union, and the total GDP of the BRICS block of developing economies, whose members are Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. However, three years later, according to Richard Wolff, professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts and currently a visiting professor at the New School University in New York, the BRICS economies grew faster than the G7 economies. Now one-third of total world output comes from the BRICS countries, while the G7 nations account for below 30%. This shift represents a major change in the global economy that will inevitably bring about major political, cultural, and economic consequences. Following the BRICS summit meeting in Johannesburg, South Africa in late August, it was announced that six new member states were invited to join the economic bloc, which includes Saudi Arabia, Iran, United Arab Emirates, Argentina, Egypt, and Ethiopia. The expanded BRICS group will now represent more than half of the world's population and account for 43% of global oil production. Your reporter spoke with Professor Wolf, author of 11 books, including Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism, and host of the weekly syndicated radio program, Economic Update. Here he discusses the issues covered in his recent article titled, The World Economy is Changing. The people know it, but their leaders don't. Over the last three years, the total output produced by the BRICS nations, led by China, has risen to be about 33% of the world's output. Those five countries produce one-third of the total output of the goods and services on this planet, whereas the United States and its allies, the G7, fell from 30 to around 29%. In other words, the United States has now been surpassed in terms of its importance in the world economy by China and its allies. And this kind of a change is historically momentous because it signals, it measures, it is the mark of a change in the world economy in which the United States is no longer, and for the first time in almost a century, it is no longer the top dog, economically speaking. It may still have the biggest military, but it is not the dominant economic power, and as most people know, from economic power and size flows political 
cultural and other kinds of influence. And the irony is, and it's a very tragic irony, that American politicians are so desperately focused on raising money from the rich people and getting votes from the general public that they have taken in recent decades to constantly saying things like the United States is the most powerful economy in the world. It isn't. The United States dominates the world economically. It doesn't. These things are not true anymore. But the American people are kind of living through an exercise in denial, in not facing what this is and what it means, not asking the obvious questions. How did this come about? Where is this difference going? How will this change affect my life, my job, my children's future? These are the most important questions you can ask in economics, but we live in a country which is pretending to itself that it is not in the situation it actually is. And that's one of the reasons, just to give you one example, why we are being surprised that most of the rest of the world is not taking sides in the war between Russia and Ukraine, the war that is really between Russia and the United States and its allies in economic terms, because the people in the rest of the world, in most of the countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, have a greater economic interest in getting along with the BRICS nations, which include China and Russia, than they have an interest in getting along with the United States and its allies. And to be safe, they're not picking sides. And if you're concerned about this, then my first urging is that you become aware of these economic changes and stop participating in the kind of denial that leads people to make very bad political, economic, cultural, and military decisions. And, you know, the, the historical message, every other empire, the Roman, the Greek, the British, the Persian, the Turkish, they were born, they evolved over time, and then they passed away. The United States has been the global empire leader for a 100 years. It was born. It evolved over that time. It has now peaked, and it is on a period of decline. And that's a much harder experience for a people than the ride up was for most of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But pretending it isn't happening solves nothing. That was Richard D. Wolf a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs at New School University in New York City and host of the weekly program, Economic Update. Find a link to his recent article titled The World Economy is Changing and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, KMRE in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>